This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically, I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner. And before we start this episode, I just want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. Today's topic is binge eating disorder. So you know yourself best if you have in the past had an issue with eating disorders of any kind and you know that listening to stuff like this can trigger that, maybe give this one a skip. If not, if you're interested in studio with me to talk about the issue, I have Dr. Tara Logan Buckley, who is a clinical psychologist and we're going to talk about binge eating disorder. Great. Good morning. How good are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm good. Um, this is one that you don't hear a lot about. I think we hear a lot about anorexia, bulimia, um, binge eating disorder, less so. Yes, I would definitely agree with you on that one. I think for a long time um, we've kind of heard of more um, kind of overeating, compulsive eating, emotional eaters instead of actually realising actually that this is a disorder within itself and it, it's got its own DSM-5 criteria as well. And I think a lot of the time some people kind of see it as a lack of willpower or it ties in kind of more as well with obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's why it kind of really goes undiagnosed um, and really undetected with a lot of people because it's quite normal to have binges every now and then. You know, it's it's a very, very normal thing. We all have bad days. We all will overeat certain amounts. Um, for women, it can be quite hormonal, actually, depending on the time of the month. So I think a lot of people don't realise actually what binge eating is and how we classify that as well for it to be a disorder. And so for people who just, you know, maybe on a Friday night or maybe it's connected to like a TV show, they always have a full share bag of Maltesers and a full share bag of Doritos like once every few weeks. That's not a disorder. That's typical behaviour just absolutely. as a human being. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the DSM-5 criteria that would delineate that from like actually this is a disorder that might need some help? Absolutely. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just read a little passage that I was looking at the last night and then from that I'm going to pull out exactly what the DSM criteria is because I think this will give a lovely idea to listeners exactly what we're looking at when we look at binge eating if that's okay with yourself. Fantastic. It starts off with my thinking about the food that I deny myself when I am dieting. This soon changes into a strong desire to eat. First of all it's a relief and a comfort to eat and I feel actually quite high. But then I can't stop and I binge. I eat and eat frantically until I'm absolutely full. Afterwards, I feel so guilty and angry with myself. Okay. So that's your kind of typical what I would hear on a daily basis with people that binge. So I suppose what I'm going to pull out from that really is that DSM criteria. What makes a binge a binge eating disorder? You might just tell us the name of that book. Absolutely. So this is the one that I'm definitely going to recommend to readers if this is something um, for people to read, if it's something that's problematic. It's called Overcoming Binge Eating um, and it's the second edition by uh, Dr. Christopher Fairborn. It's um, basically a CBTE approach, um, but I'm going to talk about that later, about how people can kind of get resources and self-help guides and stuff. But this is definitely one of the gold standard books in binge eating disorders. And I'm going to talk about some other ones as well, if that's OK. But um So with it, the first of all, the first thing is that it has to be an excess amount of food that's consumed in a certain time period. So we're kind of looking at for people with binge eating disorder, it's kind of a vast amount of food in a two hour period. 
So that's kind of the time okay. that we're looking at. And the second thing that comes with that is there has to be a loss of control that they can't stop eating. So it's almost like they become separated or kind of desensitised, that, that control just goes out the window. On top of that, there has to be some other characteristics. So normally we kind of see that they eat um, vast quantities until a point where they're feeling overfull to a point where they're sick. They're eating food when perhaps they've already eaten and they're actually not hungry. They have to eat kind of at a rapid pace. There is usually a normal, a lot of feelings afterwards like shame, disgust, guilt, all of those real negative emotions after having that binge. What we also see with binge eating disorder that kind of makes it different to um, bulimia as well is that there's no compensating afterwards for the excess calories that they've taken. So we don't see purging, we don't see excess of um, exercise and we don't see laxative use as well. So that's one of the other really important things that come in with binging. What we also see is that it's normally done in secret. Mm -hmm. So we really, so you might never know someone actually has a binge eating disorder because typically what they do is they eat what we would consider normal eating in front of other people. But then what they do is they go away and they would binge then in that time period, usually that two hours in secret and that vast quantity of food. Now, another important thing is that not every person is the same when it comes to binging, as you can imagine. Of course, yeah. Um, What we tend to go for is quite um, high fat e-content foods um, so lots and lots of calories lots and lots of fats and the foods they consume but we do have people that have what we call subjective or objective binges and with binge eating disorder we're really looking at more of the objective binges so that's when we're eating vast quantities of food So like a subjective binge is more like someone might think they've had a binge it's their subjective view that it was a binge but actually objectively that might be just a normal meal for someone or a normal Yeah absolutely and what it can be as well is it can be a lot smaller so for example let's say we have someone who eats two donuts you know they're a little bit stressed at work they've yes, the okay. three o'clock break they have their two donuts um, someone might consider that quite a binge whereas we would consider that a subjective binge where, where that's actually quite small it's not in that time period so there are two different types of binges as well that people and can have if that subjective binge is still leading to those feelings of guilt shame they're done it's done in secret is that still binge eating disorder? Or? It, yeah, it can be. So it completely depends. Um, another one of the criteria that's really important as well is in order for it to be an actual disorder, the binge has to be once a week minimum for three months. Okay. So we can have other people who meet the criteria of binge eating disorder, but they don't do it once per week. So it might be once every two, once every three weeks. They still, as you said, have all of those really distressing emotions that come from the binge. So what we would do with those is we wouldn't give them necessarily the um, diagnosis of binge eating disorder, but we would give them a other possessified um, feeding or eating disorder diagnosis. So they okay. meet the criteria, but it's not the full criteria for binging. But they still have all of those real distressing thoughts of having the disorder as well. And what is the difference? The diagnosis is different, but what's different within the treatment? To be honest with you, that there's not the treatment will be the same. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's just because when we do binge eating disorder as well, it can obviously go because it's a spectrum. So we can have mild, we can have moderate, we can have extreme, and we can have severe as well. And that will depend on how many of these binges someone has per week. So one would one kind of one to three would be in the mild, but we can have people that can have fourteen upwards of these binges per week and we'd be looking at an extreme kind of severe range of binge eating disorder then. So that's kind of it. It's more of then we get into the spectrum of, well, what is it in that categories? Okay. So, I mean, what is it that leads someone? Is this something that is triggered by an event? It's a mental health issue for sure, isn't it? Absolutely. And is can you find that like someone slides up and down that scale of mild to severe it, within their lifetime, like different things can trigger it. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, so what we have is we've a lot of factors that make someone quite vulnerable to maybe having a binge eating disorder. So one of the very first things are we have kind of factors relating to self. So, for example, if we have low self-esteem, that's one of the biggest indicators that we have for eating disorders. And particularly when it comes to binge eating slash obesity, because a lot of people who have binge eating disorder would be in the higher weight category as mm-hmm. well. Um, so self-esteem plays a big, massive part in that. Also, are we more vulnerable to de- um, developing other mental health difficulties? So depression. Um, anxiety are always in with that Um, as well are we kind of perfect in our nature do we have those kind of perfect tendencies Um, are we kind of very self-critical of self do we not automatically have kind of like high levels of shame and guilt as well so all of those will kind of make us a little bit more vulnerable to our personality types and how we are to self Um, we also then have kind of the family so obviously um, genetics plays a big part. Particularly, Does it? Yeah, yeah, particularly with eating disorders. What we tend to find is that um, eating disorders uh, tend to run in families. And actually what we tend to find is it's the eating disorder is the same in the family. So we normally don't see someone might having anorexia and then someone else having binge eating disorder. It seems to be that when there is anorexia, that's kind of the main eating disorder within that, within that family unit, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so genetics do play a big factor. And is that genetics or is that... Because if you grow up in a household where a parent is anorexic, then if like generally the parent is the person who feeds you and who cooks your food and now depending on which parent it is and how the household works. But is it definitely a genetic factor or is it also just a, like you're used to someone eating in that way and so you eat the same as them? I would go with both, to okay. be 100% honest with you. It's actually one of the um, the exact um, kind of points you made there is one of the ones that we use against that kind of family theory model, which is, well, actually, you know what, if they're in that environment, um, does that not mean they're learning it? So how is it genetics? So, you know, in psychology, it's a science. So we're always trying to, I suppose, um, have different hypotheses. So it's very, very true, obviously if we're learning and we're in that environment, we're going to pick up on that as a young child. If mother has lots of strict dieting rules or um, there's rules about body image in particular, there's excessive exercise, then that typically is learned as well within the family unit. So that's a really, really difficult question to pull apart. Mm -hmm. Is it genetics or is it learned behaviours? And the answer is, I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. To be honest with you, yeah. Do you see binge eating disorder as um, weighted either way with a gender? Um... I suppose historically, um, what we would see is we would see that it would be predominantly more um, females who would suffer with eating disorders in, in general. general. However, binge eating is the one that actually it's a lot more even between male and females. So okay. it is one of the ones where we are. And since COVID and I think in the last few years as well, we are seeing a dramatic increase in males presenting um, for treatment um, and for assessment with eating disorders as well. OK, so the things I want to know are if you feel like this might be something that you have how what should you do is it curable to use a f- flawed word um and what is the way out of it so whatever way you think you can address those things let's let's talk yeah absolutely um so yes of course um i think everything there's a way out of everything you know it's about getting that right support do i think things are curable no i don't um it's particularly when it comes to mental health because we can have so many triggers life changes so much that particularly when it comes to food um one thing i always stress to people is that Food, um, I hate to use the word addiction and food together, Mm -hmm. but I make a comparison because if we're addicted to another substance, so if we're someone who's addicted to substances, um, they can give up those substances and still live a very happy, meaningful life and not go back on them. It's the same with gambling addiction. However, um, food is an extremely tricky one. And the reason for that is 
we have to consume food to survive. But can I challenge you on something? Absolutely, here? you can. <laughs> so say if someone is addicted to alcohol, right, they can give up alcohol and they don't need it in their life. They can't give up drink. They mm-hmm. can't give up water. Yes. So is there something to say that, yes, you can't give up food and therefore it is more difficult to quit than alcohol. Mm-hmm. But there are some foods that you can quit if they are the thing that trigger you. Or is that a bad way to look at it because it's not the food that triggers you? Absolutely, it's not the food. Okay. Yeah, it's not the food. And the thing with that as well is if we start to um, completely cut out food or food groups, Mm -hmm. um, that's a diet. And the issues is that dieting cycles are one of the biggest things that activate uh, binge binging cycles as well. Um, Which is why I'm so shocked. Like, sorry to like bring in another issue. (laughs) But like so much of the world is like just fetishizes diet and congratulates people for being on diets. And then you have things like Operation Goddamn Transformation, which like you don't need to get into, but it's like so should be cancelled. Like that is my stance on it. I've said it here. Yes, I Um, agree with you on that one. A hundred percent couldn't have said it better. But that dieting like or these sort of like intermittent fasting, telling people not to eat for 16 or however many hours it is. Like it's just so you're just creating eating disorder behavior, whether that leads to an eating disorder, I think depends on the person's predisposition to developing these things. But they're so dangerous. And then calling them out, you get targeted by people being like, some people just want to lose weight and that's not an issue. Mm-hmm. I'm like, OK, I don't know. I'm not getting into this battle. So I'm just going to leave it. I 100% agree with you. Um, one of the very first things I do with anyone that comes through my door is um, a very, very stark statement that diets don't work because they don't. It is um, a multi-billion dollar or euro, whatever way you want to call it, um, entity that's out there. And it doesn't work. It just literally feeds on people's shame and guilt. And it keeps this dieting, binging cycle going and this shame and guilt continuously. They don't work. It is not normal for us to create these kind of um, cognitive rigid rules in our mind that we cannot have this thing. Um, It just doesn't happen. And actually, one of the things is dieting is one of the huge triggers for binge eating so actually losing weight is a huge massive trigger for binge eating yeah gaining weight so no matter what way we look at it in in that kind of dieting realm they can all basically um bring about episodes of binging for people um the dieting culture it's quite funny because when we look at social media we think we're living now in a society and an environment that is really fitness orientated and fitness I don't are you kind of uh, this is what we're led to believe when you you kind of look at things well I actually spent 2020 my New Year's resolution in 2021 what year are we in 22 so 21 was to like just unsubscribe unfollow people that I thought were like really really toxic I mean listeners will already know I I have an eating disorder so um, I have been in I've been treated for anorexia I've been treated for bulimia um, my period stopped for three and a half years because I was underweight my hair fell out um, and I have also been overweight and probably probably definitely have had episodes of binge eating when you when you differentiate the sort of the, the amount of time and how many weeks I don't know that it's binge eating disorder or that it was binge eating disorder when I had it um, but anyway I've definitely been anorexic and I've definitely been bulimic and so because I have those eating disorders I decided in 2021 that I was going to unfollow any account that I thought was a bit of a racket that was promoting New Year, New Me, any sort of body. Because I know a lot of people, people who do, like I know people who do Slimming World, Weight Watchers, CrossFit, any of those intense fitness things. And to me, it's all the same thing. Like you are all dealing with your own demons in the same sphere. And so now I follow a lot of, then so I started, I kind of course corrected the other way and followed a lot of body 
positivity accounts, which I actually also found a little bit toxic um, because actually I don't want to be positive about my body. I just want to be neutral about my body. This is my body. Like it supports me to do the things that I want to do in my life. And so now I don't follow any accounts that are sort of like focused on body positive or negative or fitness or anything. Um, I do follow some so um, these guys in the States who are like physiotherapists and they teach me different stretches because I can have issues with my back. But that's the only time that an Instagram account is focused on body for me at all. I honestly think that's absolutely fantastic. It's one of the big things I would say when people come to work with me is what are you following on social media? Um, do you ever put your report on your phone that tells you the amount of time you spend on your phone? Yeah, all the time. But I sort of allow my... <laughs> I work in like social media is part yeah. of my job, okay? And also my psychologist, I, I, I can... I'm autistic and one of the things that really calms me is watching accounts on social media. It's just sort of like ASMR, like cutting up yes, sand, I know all those yeah, sorts of yeah. things. So she actually tells me to watch some of them. So I don't, yeah. my screen time doesn't count. <laughs> okay, of course. So for me, sometimes I get a shock, you know, I'm there at the end of a day and I'm like going, I could have been so productive. And what was I just watching? Probably like episodes of puppies and kittens, because that's what I, I love on YouTube, by the way. I love okay. watching puppies and kittens and all those type of things. They make me feel good and access my soothing system. But when I talk to people that um, come in that have eating disorders, so much of their social media usage is concentrated on other people's bodies or it's concentrated, particularly with binge eating, is on different diets that are going to happen, different fabs that are coming out. And as you know, um, fads, particularly body types, in particular females, it just changes dramatically. It's, it's, you know, actually even since, you know, my own 30 odd years on this earth, the, the difference in body shapes and type that have become acceptable. So I tell people the very first thing, like you've done, get rid just just stop, just stop looking at it. Social media, and we've had so much mass media coverage, particularly over the COVID-19 pandemic as well. It's one of these big, massive things that can dramatically impact how we feel about stuff. I don't know, sometimes I pick up and I see things that are quite hurtful and I get quite upset or my threat system's activated. So one of the best things you can do for overcoming any sort of disordered eating, whether that's um, a diagnosis or whether it's just you feel that actually your cognitive views are quite rigid around food or you feel that actually you lose a sense of control or it's just problematic is just cut out anything that triggers or reminds you of something. Um, that alone can be a big step forward and a big progress because a lot of people are even afraid to let that go. Yeah, I remember the day I had to die. I had to delete my psychologist. Now it took weeks and um, with a psychologist, I had to delete my fitness pal. I had been tracking my calories for four years. Yeah. And I actually thought the world was going to end. I was like, this is so bad. Like, this is such a healthy thing for me to be doing to to be tracking my calories and everyone says that I should be doing it and taking off my smartwatch and like I just thought I was doing something that was so gross you know by deleting it now I would never ever go back but that was really really tough like and they've also gamified all those things you know by like having a streak you have tracked your calories Mm. for 900 days and you're like that is psychic that is pathological like that yeah. you are congratulating me you've created a disorder in me absolutely and every time that you get that you're getting that shot of dopamine you're getting free dopamine for, for going into that as you know this is how social media works they've got algorithms so when you go in and you look Freaks at these things out. you just get these free hits of dopamine and that's why people get so addicted to it and one of the things you brother fit my fitness pal 
the amount of clients that I have that become literally obsessive about it. And one of the first things we try to do is, well, it takes, oh, it's over time, as you yeah. said. It's not a progress that I can come in and say, okay, you need to delete this. I'd say, you have to think about, is this adding anything positive to your life? Or actually, is it feeding you? Is it is it keeping you going in the cycles that you're stuck in? And it's one of the biggest things people let go of. And another one is the weighing scales. I used to weigh myself every day. I used to weigh my food, all of my food, every day. I used to travel to Los Angeles. I was in a long distance relationship and I was working with Paramount in the US, in Los Angeles. I used to travel with my weighing scales, food and body, because I didn't trust that they wouldn't be exactly the same. And I couldn't get, I remember I was staying in a hotel once and I couldn't get the floor, like the floor was a little bit uneven mm-hmm. and it was carpeted, so I couldn't. And I remember putting my weighing scales up on the, the place where the sink was and having to climb up onto the sink to weigh myself because everywhere else was carpeted. And at no point until I started working with psychologists was I like, this might be a bit yeah. obsessive. Completely, because to you at that time and in that frame of mind, that was just a completely normal thing to do. And or like the world would end if I didn't. Absolutely. And the, the can like you even th- if you can go back to that moment, if you can think about it, the amount of probably anxiety that you were feeling in your body and yeah. literally your thoughts, because you're based in that threat system, all of your thoughts, everything just goes to I need to do this continuously. I have to. And I don't think people, some people really understand the effects that actually when you have an eating disorder have because it literally takes over your entire life it's planning your next meal it's thinking about your next binge it's thinking how do I reduce calories and this is across the board for eating disorders in in general it is so life debilitating because everything revolves around it yeah no it is it's so like even talking about it now I can feel the dread and obviously like you'd be on a flight so you'd be a little bit bloated and just tracking the weight and being like oh my god I can't do X, Y and Z because my weight is up or thinking that and I remember when I started working with a psychologist she was saying like and what happens if you don't weigh yourself and I'd be like oh I'm afraid to gain weight and she's like and what like what what is the why do you why are you so afraid of being in a larger body and that mm-hmm. was that was what I kind of had to work on and what I had to deconstruct because we live in a world that's really really cruel and really treats people in larger bodies like even medically like yeah. and that is something that really freaks me out because weight is not a measurement of health. Absolutely not. BMI yeah. oh. is was created by an astronaut. Was create it is literally just about the relationship that your body has to gravity. It does yeah. nothing else. And yet people are being refused medical treatment, fertility treatment, doctors telling them like going in with sore knees and doctors saying, "Oh, you have to lose weight." And it's nothing to do with that. Absolutely. In fact, several studies have shown that the the relationship between losing weight and any pressure on knees is not connected at all. I'll give you an actual a true story. So, um the reason I'm very interested in this is um I battled with obesity myself and um I've lost um an ex a massive amount of excess weight. And I remember going into a consultant um, a few years ago. And at this point, I had um, roughly about about seven or eight stone lost at this point. Um, really couldn't lose any more. And the consultant looked at me and said, well, if you just lose weight off of your legs, your knees will be OK. But sure, how are you meant to selectively lose weight? It's uh, not possible. And th- this is a consultant. And I'm just kind of and, and at this point, you know, this is my area of expertise. And I just had nothing to say. I just kind of looked and I remember um, about six months later, I went back and it actually ended up being um, an actual medical condition that went undiagnosed. So I went and got treatment and voila, no pain in my knees ever since. So when I went back to see the consultant, I actually brought him in a load of medical um, research papers on it and said, I would be obliged if you would actually um, research in this because it affects actually 14 percent of women. So it might be good for you to know. But that alone. How did he, was it a he? It was a he. How yes. How did he take it, that? Um <laughs> 
not so well. I can imagine. Yes, yes. He was um, he was an older gentleman, an older consultant as well. So it obviously been in his post for quite some while. Um, Anyone actually who's interested in this area, there's a couple of accounts that are actually good to follow on Instagram. Dr. Joshua Woolrich um, and the Fat Doctor UK. He's got a book called Food is Not Medicine, which is really, really worth reading. Um, but yeah, no, it, just finding doctors. like, And I know a lot of people who are overweight who might have binge eating disorder who won't go to a doctor because oh, they're afraid of the stigma attached. Completely. I remember... Um, a story that was told to me um, from a patient um, who who has obesity and um, she was being brought in for a surgical procedure and they had to weigh her beforehand before giving her the anaesthesia, before the anaesthesiologist seen her to be able to give her the anaesthetic. And they didn't have a weighing scales um, that would support her body weight um, there. And they ended up walking her through the kitchen and weighing her on the industrial scales in the kitchen. And I remember her telling me the story and I I just like I almost welled with just the pain that person must have felt and the humiliation and the shame and guilt that went with that. And this is what people with living with obesity face every single day. Numerous amounts of them don't want to go, as you said, and seek support because they're not met with a compassionate front. They go to the doctor, say, I have a pain in my chest. It's because of your weight. Even simple things as going to the waiting room in the GP and there isn't chairs to support somebody. That's like mm-hmm. that alone, that small little thing that makes people feel welcome from the moment they walk in, but, but they can't. Um, another thing I would get as well, I would hear all of the time is that um, staff members would walk extremely fast, whereas the other person might have mobility issues and they wouldn't slow down. And if you kind of think about it, if we were walking down the street with someone um, of older generation who might have mobility issues, we'd always walk along side by side and we'd support them and make sure Um, but people living with obesity don't get that same Is it because people think that somehow that being obese is like just a lack of self-discipline or that it's your own fault somehow? Yeah, that's one of the big things that I would hear. Um, most of my research to date has been has been on obesity and particularly the psycho, kind of psychological dimensions around obesity. And a big thing that we would get is that it's a lack of willpower that people have. Um, that's the perception. That is complete. Not perception. the truth. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, obesity is probably one of the most complex um, mental health, in my opinion, Um I suppose disorders, um, not that obesity is a mental health disorder because it is a disease, it's classified as a disease by the ICD-10, but there is a lot of mental health components that obviously come with obesity. Um, And it's very, very hard to determine, well, what came first? Is it the mental health aspect or actually is it it the obesity that came first? Because the two of them tie in a lot. For me, um, I I think that's a real stigmatised view that people have. Well, if the, the biggest one is, oh, well, if you just eat less and exercise more, if things were that simplistic, yeah. no, like honestly, if, and I kind of look back and I say, well, if things were that simplistic and I say people who live with obesity don't want to live with obesity. They, they don't want to feel like this. And I think that's a very, very important thing for people to remember. They don't actively choose. They don't wake up in their adolescent years and go, you know what, this is what I want for the rest of my life. It is so complex. It is an area that we are just learning more and more about. And for me in psychology with obesity there is no gold standard treatment to go to so for everything else we might have cognitive behavioural therapy we might have delectoral behavioural therapy for obesity there is nothing actually there because it is so So complex Taking a break from the episode to bring you an ad because this podcast is only possible because of our sponsor supporting our sponsor supports the podcast 
and let me tell you about who they are. Rockwell's financial planning service is designed for anyone who feels as if they kind of need to just put a shape on their finances. I don't know if you're like me, you kind of feel like, oh, my finances are all over the place. I need to kind of start adulting. This is the service for you. Whether you're like a senior executive in a multinational company or a small business owner or just a young couple looking to get a head start in your financial planning, a single person who wants to make plans for their future, So they consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners, which I really like because it's active. It's not just like um, namby-pamby sort of making a plan. doesn't matter where you are in the country. They're happy to help you in person or over Zoom. Pensions and investments are really important, but they're absolutely useless without knowing why you're using them and what you're using them for. They are in the outcomes business. They are in the business of results. So it's not just about the plan, it's about the action. So they use this like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for you listening right now, for Basically listeners. If you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically, you can book a complimentary financial planning session today. You'll get a cash flow model which outlines any gaps in your finances and they'll give you the first steps to achieving your specific goals. I highly recommend Rockwell and I think as a Basically listener, you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's going to put you on the right path to getting your finances in order. That's it. Go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for five euro plus that. Uh, Or you can give more if you want to go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. Just taking a break from my podcast to tell you about another podcast on the network called Words to That Effect. Words to That Effect, it's like a narrative storytelling show and it explores the kind of fascinating places where fiction, history, science and popular culture overlap on a Venn diagram. So like from the Victorian past to utopian futures, dinosaurs to detectives, zombies to mummies, mummies, how does literature shape our understanding of popular culture it's a really fascinating podcast 
one that will really get your mind going things that you've never thought of before but will find fascinating if you like my podcast you'll probably like words to that effect give it a listen and let me know what you think I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect how do the Victorians invent time where do all those pirate cliches come from should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at headstuffpodcasts.com. And is it true, like you just say there, it struck me when you said like nobody who's obese wants to be like that. Is that true? Or like, are there people who are like, look, I know I'm in a larger body. I'm fine with it. So I think it depends. Um, I can only talk about my own personal perspective and probably with clients that I've worked with and with clients that I've had upon research studies. And I haven't met one person that wants to live in obesity mm-hmm. um, due to the mental um, complications it causes them, um, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. But is that not just because society is so unaccepting of it? Like, are there not cultures? I don't know. I'm not challenging. Mm, course, I'm actually yeah, saying, like, yeah. are there cultures where, like, I don't know, I've been to Hawaii, I've been to several places where naturally people are in larger bodies. Yep, completely. And they and don't seem to be... I mean, I don't know these people and I don't know their inner lives, but is it just that in our obsession in the West is about losing weight and being smaller and... I, def- beauty. I, I definitely think there's an element of that because if we look at there's certain um, parts of India, for example, where um, I hate to say this, but they force feed um, younger girls and uh, adolescent females in order to gain weight because it's seen as more sexually desirable and attractive um, for male suitors. Okay. Um, so that does happen in, in parts of the world. You're absolutely right there. I also think as well is historically, if we look at um, any pictures of the Renaissance, if we look at any of the pictures back, we look at female bodies. They're curvy. They have weight. We're meant to have weight as females. We're meant to carry life. We're meant to be able to feed babies. We're meant to have extra weight on us. That's just completely normal. Um, I definitely do think there's an element of it in the Western world. Absolutely, 100%. I think that society has put um, pressures on us for it to look a certain way. And believe it or not, that really has only actually started to happen since um, the Miss American pageant. So really oh only Christ. since the 1940s. Yeah, in a very short second of time Thanks, um, with, with that, what happened was um, they started allowing um, other um, nationalities in like and what happened was um, girls started just getting taller just yeah. due to obviously um, races and cultures. And so women were getting taller and smaller just because that was their genetic build. And as a result, then American women started to think, oh, actually, this is what's attractive and this is what's appealing. And that's actually where this dieting culture started, believe it or not. Nonsense. Like. Yeah. Before that, um, being overweight or having weight on as a female was actually desirable. I think as well, there's different levels, if that makes sense, of being, as you know, we have being overweight, we've been obese and we've morbid obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we get into the category of morbid obesity, when we have a lot of those health consequences that come with it and mobility issues as well, I think there is where people really don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, I think that definitely there's people who live in larger bodies and are absolutely so comfortable with that. And I think that's an amazing thing. Um, and I suppose from my experience when it comes to obesity, I am working with people who are in the morbid to super morbid yes. range of obesity and for those because it impacts absolutely everything from the moment they wake they wish that they could 
which I is understand when yeah. it's when it's impacting your quality of life. Absolutely. But I yeah. do think that even those and I'm just skeptical from my life, you know, mm. that like yeah. even those terms overweight, obese. Yeah. You know, it's just like, well, what is that line? Yeah. Like, wh- because like I'm really good friends with PJ Gallagher and he's in the gym constantly, you know, and he's very, yeah. very muscular. And when he stands on a scale, he's like morbidly obese. You're definitely not. Yeah. Though. And that's it. And that's why, you know, that that range. And I when we use those terminology, it is the BMI, which I can't. I absolutely dislike. There is a new scale, though, called the Edmondsbury scale. And this is a lovely one because what it does is it looks at, OK, what what is your weight? But actually, that's not important. How is your weight impacting your quality of life? How is it impacting? your health yeah. and this is the new scale that they actually use um, for people who want to undergo biatric surgery so oh, yeah. you know um, if it's a public service it goes by okay need and obviously length of waiting but it's like okay this person weighs this amount however they have so many comorbidities due to being this excess weight this person needs intervention more so or this person is is not as healthy so it's a lovely scale to be able to take well actually as you said weight doesn't equal health yeah. um, we look at sumo wrestlers prime example yeah, really, really good example of actually how um, sumo wrestlers are actually quite healthy people. Very healthy, very yeah, fit, very working healthy. out all the time. Absolutely. But if they stepped on a scale, they yeah. would be like that. So can we get back to binge eating disorder? I, and I'm also interested in bariatric surgery, but it might be a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. But um, because I have a couple of friends who've had bariatric surgery and mm-hmm. um, some of them who've had gastric sleeves and some yeah. who've had gastric bypasses. And I'm conscious that uh, like one in particular I'm thinking of who lives in the States has binge eating disorder, then had bariatric surgery, but still has binge eating disorder. And it's really not going well um, yeah. because a surgery isn't going to remove a mental health issue. Absolutely not. This is one of the biggest things. Um, and it's what we're starting to see in biatrics. Um, so this is an area I worked in extensively. And um, this is why the psychology before biatrics is of utmost importance. And because of that is if there is something like um, alcoholism, for example, binge eating disorder or someone in particular that has a diagnosis of um, borderline personality disorder or unstable personality disorder, um, really, they need to be treated beforehand. What we do now, for example, is people who have borderline personality disorder, we don't put them forward for biatric surgery because what we're doing is we're actually taking a coping mechanism away from them. And what we've tend to found is that their rate of suicide increased fourfold after surgery. The same with alcoholism. Alcoholism rates increased 3.5 fold after biatric surgeries. And if we don't um, settle with binge eating disorder, if we don't work with that beforehand, the binging continues. Only this time, the binging is actually a lot more detrimental to, to, to your physical self and yeah. your biology self. Um, due to, obviously, if it's a sleeve, it's a lot smaller that you're having. The stomach is just, so it, it can regrow. It's a balloon. It's like. like, it's literally regrows. So the thing is, if you're continuing your binge eating while having this, first of all, the digestive discomfort you're going to have afterwards is absolutely chronic. And the second thing is you're undoing what the biatric surgery meant is one of the things that said to me is it's a quick fix it's an escape mechanism I cannot stand when people say that it is a tool that's all the biatric surgery is you can cheat biatric surgery you can um, liquidise Mars bars and Aero bars and drink them and you're going to undo everything the biatric surgery has it's a tool and a mechanism and what we're finding is if you don't work with it after 10 years you will regain most of that weight that you've lost and more it, mm-hmm. is what they're finding and if you have um, so that if you have a sleeve it's causing problematic if you have the bypass and you're binge eating that's that's really really problematic you, you're opening yourself up to a lot of danger there physically with yeah. that um, and your friend is a prime example if you don't 
deal with the mental health stuff that's there or you don't deal with what's causing that binge. Where has that come from? Is this due to invalidating environments? Is it my relationship to self? What is making me engage in these behaviours? It's going to continue afterwards because no matter what you do biologically to your stomach, it is not going to change your relationship with self to emotions, how you feel, your your cognitive rules that you have as well. Um, so okay, so let's talk about the... Uh, just, wow, we've been talking for a long time. Um, let's talk about the treatment then. So if someone has this, what can they do? Where can they go? How Absolutely. do they start? Um, should they be reading a book or should they be like getting help from someone? So what I would say is the first thing I say to everybody is have the awareness. Okay, is this a problem for me? So actually, you know what? I think I have binge eating disorder or you know what? I don't think I meet the criteria, but definitely I do binges that cause me distress and I want to change this. The one thing about binge eating disorder is um, we can't use a behavioural intervention to overcome it. So for anorexia, we might, um, if they're in an inpatient unit, we might force feed, which I hate using that terminology, but this is what happens. Um, We can't fix this by a diet alone, even though I hate the word diet. Um, But what we can do is it's very much we have to control feelings and our cognitions around that and our behaviours, which is the binge basically at the end of that. The lovely thing about binge eating disorder is um, there is amazing, amazing um, progress with just using self-help material. Oh, great. Really, really wow. good. Yeah. So it's one of these disorders that actually using just self-help programs works for a lot, a lot of people. It's not going to work for everybody. And, and that's perfectly OK as well. Um, there's really good services um, within if you go into a BodyWise, there is a website. Um, I feel like th- we mentioned them on nearly every oh, episode yeah, they're, of this they're, show. Yeah. BodyWise, B-O-D-Y-W-H-Y. Yes, absolutely fantastic. So they go into all eating disorders and they have an, an, um, a section on binge eating and they have some really, really good literature as well, like a self-help book that you can download and make a start. Um, the National Clinical Programme for Eating Disorders by the HSE have fantastic resources for this. They have an amazing um, bibliotherapy section so you can go in, look at the best books and kind of like the gold standards that are there and choose from that. And they also have an app which is fantastic. So oh, there's cool. an app that have resources. Not a lot of people know that the HSC have apps for this area. So it's a really good one what to have. What is the app? Do you know it? Um, so it's it's just, it's it's when you go into it, it's just their app on basically um, binge eating disorder, oh, on great. eating disorders okay. in general. So if you go into the um, National Clinical Programme for Eating Disorders in the HSC, you can download the app. And what it has is it's got um, self-help tools, it's got resources, it's got the bibliotherapy and everything like that as well. If you want to go down the self-help route, um, there's two ways you can do it. One is you can do it entirely on your own um, and it'll work for some people. Or another way you can do it is you can go, okay, you know what, I'm going to go down the self-help route, but I also want just a little bit of support. So it can be very good to link in with a therapist who's got experience in this area where you might only meet with them once every two to three weeks. And that person then will say, "Okay, this is kind of your I hate using the word homework. This is your this is your homework. This is what you need to go and do. And it's structured. So that's another good way if you're kind of going, I don't think I can do this just on my own. Another obviously way if you think this is very, very problematic is obviously um, the first is a trip to your um, GP would be the very, very first thing. And there is different pathways that you can go, obviously, if you're a child or adolescent or if you're an adult as well. I suppose, depending on um, where you live, um, some places we have actual um, proper care teams for eating disorders. Other places you'd be going to your adult mental health services as well. Um, So it just really depends on what way you want to do it. No, I really feel this is really problematic. I want proper support. Um, Also, you've got private um, psychotherapy, counsellors, psychologists. The one thing I would say is about this is you need to find someone who has experience in this area. So I wouldn't be going to someone 
who doesn't and the reason for that is um, it is a real particular area and the person does need to be trained in the approaches because they're not your standard approaches they're completely adapted So what can you give people like a sentence they should say if they contact someone like do you specialise in eating disorders or have you experience what should they be asking? Absolutely so um, I always say so this is my one thing for everybody is um, before you pick a therapist ring a few of them See what they're like on the phone. Um, do you feel a connection with them? Can you easily talk to them? Can you relate to them? Um, I always say to people as well, you know, if you come and meet with me and you don't like me after the first session, that's perfectly fine. A lot of people don't realise that um, the therapeutic relationship actually accounts for nearly 60% of your progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are really shocked when they hear that. They're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I'm like, completely because that person in front of you is going to know more about you than you probably know about yourself at the end of it. And get you, you have to expert. trust them. You to. have to trust them. You have to have that relationship with them. So one of the things I would be looking for is um, what is your experience with eating disorders? Do you have particular experience with binge eating disorder? So very being very specific about that because it is different to our other eating disorders. Okay, great. So tell me how much experience do you have and what models do you use? Okay. Really, really important. And what? So if they ask what models they use, what should they be listening out for? Of course. So it depends on the person. Um, the three models that I tend to integrate between um, is a CBTE approach, which is cognitive behavioural therapy enhanced. And that's kind of created by Christopher Fairburn. Another what's model, the, like what's the enhanced? So the enhanced is basically that it's been um, it's been designed to help more so with the cognitions around eating. OK. And also it's very, very structured and it's over usually um, 20 sessions, one time per week, sometimes two times per week and up to maximum 40. So it's it's probably a lot more, um, it's more complex than your standard CBT, if that kind of makes sense. Um, and it's specifically designed for trying to break those cycles that you have around kind of disordered eating. So that's your kind of CBT approach, which suits some people. Um, however, you have to be highly motivated to do it. And it does mean having to fill in kind of food diaries, which can be quite triggering for some people. So it isn't for for everybody. That's what I had to do at the start was do like a food plan in the morning and then food intake on so on one side of the page it was like here's what I plan to eat today mm. and then on the other side like here is what I actually ate today and then there was like a note section where you know if something veered off like yeah. why or did you pur- like you had to put a little asterisk if you purged any of the meals and why and then um, and it was a bit triggering because it was a bit like my fitness pal but then also through this it must have been kind of CBT because it was uh, through those sessions that I did with her Eventually, she started to like wean me off this. She was like, mm. I don't want you. It's not good for you to be writing your plans down every day. But it definitely did help for a while. Yeah. And now I find like if I'm going through a period of time that's like a little bit crazy or I feel like, oh, I'm a bit wobbly. It can be good just for like one or two days. To be like, OK, I'll just do a plan and an intake today. And yeah. then that can like stabilise the whole situation. Absolutely. And you give a lovely example because for someone like you, it was very, very beneficial and yeah. it was really, really good. And now you're like, oh, actually, it's a skill that I go back to if I feel like I need to. For other people, um, it can be the most scaring, it's overwhelming thing and they're just not able to do it. Yeah. So it completely depends. And that's why I think having a different models is really good. Um, No model ever fits anybody properly. Oh, yeah. And, there's and loads yeah, of tools I have been like, completely. this is, I can't do this. Sorry. Absolutely. And it's about being honest with the person. I Mm -hmm. always say you need to be so honest with me. And that's why I sometimes, well, I don't, I always use an integrated approach for binge eating disorder because um, I pull on different modalities. Another one that I use um, is compassion focused therapy. So I'm not too sure if you've heard about this. Yeah, CFT. I rolled my eyes the first time I heard it. I was like, oh, the last (laughs) thing I need is more compassion. Shut up. (laughs) And now I've sort of come around to the idea. Oh, it's just such a beautiful therapy. It it really, really is. And to be honest with you, um, it's my main one I use 
experience for people with binge eating disorder. You know, the way we talked about those feelings at the end where you're left with just massive amounts of shame and guilt. And actually that keeps the cycle of binging going as well, the shame and guilt that we feel around it. Um, what compassion focused therapy does is it completely ignores the food at the start it ignores that um, kind of like dieting it it just takes it all away and what we do is we move into well where are these shame and guilt coming why do we have them can we change our narrative around them and it's a beautiful therapy all about learning how to um, we don't have to be perfect we're, we, we are good enough as we are we don't have to feel these levels of shame and guilt and changing our narrative but it also brings us back to where, where did this come from what is there? Why do we have these blocks of self-compassion? Because we also lack a lot of self-esteem, normally people who eat, who do binge eating or have um, other eating disorders. And CFT really goes in and it focuses an awful lot on increasing self-esteem as well. So it's, it's a lovely one to use. And the reason it's so good as well is because there's an awful lot of psychoeducation in it and it's really practical. And then we've got the skills. I always say we can't change anything in psychology unless we've awareness. Awareness yeah. is where we, we've to start with awareness for everything. And you can be in that awareness phase for a long time. Like Absolutely. some people think like, oh, I become aware of it and then I'll change. It's like, no, well, you kind of come to believe like you kind of Completely. come around to the idea. Yeah. And that's that's what the you know, a lot of people get surprised about the definition of compassion. It's um, to recognize that we're in pain and suffering to engage with it and then make the commitment to alleviate it. Yes, but that is the third step. Like the middle step there, I think, is crucial. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people recognise it, but also they don't want to engage that they don't want to sit because compassion isn't rainbows and kittens. I say this to everyone. Compassion is seriously hard work because it means actually sitting in the pain and suffering. But with the view, as you said, of that third part is to alleviating that yeah and that's why it's an amazing one to use um, for anyone with binge eating disorders because it touches on so many elements that people feel and that they have around this so it's a fantastic therapy in my opinion to use for that and it's been um, Chris um, sorry Ken Goss has actually developed a model to help people um, overcome overeating using the CFT approach so it's a fantastic book um, Overcoming Overeating Using Compassion Focused Therapy by Ken Goss. So it's lovely. The uh, third model I use is dialectal behavioural therapy. So that really focuses on, again, awareness, um, using ways for us to be able to um, have distress tolerance skills, how to regulate our emotions, recognise what emotions come up for us when we want to engage in a binge. Okay, realise, okay, these aren't, these emotions are overwhelming for us. Can we, can we change these emotions? Can we look at them differently? What skills can we put in place instead of using binge eating? So DBT has also developed a model for that um, that really is, is fantastic in this area as well. So we are seeing massive amounts of changes within psychology and treatment areas being adapted to be able to use in particularly with binge eating disorder. That's why self-help stuff, there's a lot of self-help material out there now that people can access. Thank you so much. Um, that's all we have time for today. But if people have listened to you and they think this is an issue for me, do you can they can they work with you? Where can they find you? Or and if you can't work with them, can they contact you to get a recommendation of somewhere else if yeah. they're not in this locality? Yeah, absolutely. No problem at all. So, um, yeah, I, I work with people with, with binge eating disorder, um, as I've already said. So e- normally the easiest way for people to contact me is through my Instagram page. So it's Dr. Tara LB. Um, is normally the easiest way. Um, if you're looking for face to face, I'm predominantly within the Dublin area and I do offer online as well. So I, if people are comfortable with online, I think a lot of people are due to COVID-19, how we've had to change things. Um, or if people just have any questions or they want some of the materials that I talked about today and they can feel free to contact me. I'm, I'm pretty good at responding. Through Instagram? Through Instagram, Okay, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Do you have an email address for I people s- who aren't on Instagram? Yeah, sure. So it's my full name, uh, Tara Logan Buckley at hotmail.com. Brilliant. 
thank you so very much and thank you for listening to another episode of Basically if you have any questions or feedback on today's episode you can contact me on Instagram or through my website stephaniepreisner.com and yeah we will see you next oh we I better let you know uh, all the people who were involved in this episode <laughs> we are um, produced by Julie Hassett we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Net- Network our music is by Only Ruin and our graphic design is by Kahalogara and we will see you next week This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.